hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work, works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in the name of your only begotten Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we ask for your blessings. Amen. Last week we finished question 20 of the Shorter Catechism, which says this. The question is, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And then that last clause, by a Redeemer, brings us immediately into the question 21, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And this is the answer. And we'll be beginning with this this morning and hopefully um, finishing it up and question 22 together with it next week. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. I must say amen after that. That's (laughs) such a marvelous statement to the glory of God. Last week we finished, as I said, talking about uh, question and answer 20, and we had looked particularly at two, maybe three various doctrines. The the foreknowledge of God the Father, which was behind and underneath his election. We talked about that a good bit. So that eternal electing love of the Father, which is the engine, as it were, to use a crass term, the fountain perhaps is a better word, the eternal fountain of all of the work of redemption that would follow, that eternal electing love of the Father by which he predestinated and elected us in his Son to everlasting life, to eternal union with him in his Son. Uh, 
And then last week we came particularly to the covenant of grace. But underneath the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace, we learned from larger catechism, uh, question and answer 31, the covenant of grace, the question is, who, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The answer is with Christ as the second Adam and with all the elect as his seed. And so there's a twofold aspect to the covenant of grace. Originally, uh, incipiently, it's eternally made between the Father and the Son, and then the beneficiaries of this covenant of grace are all the elect. So we talked about how in the history of the 1600s, the Puritans were working through, mainly because of divergent views they were trying to cut off at the past, they... they tended to make a distinction in the covenant of grace between what they called the covenant of redemption and then the covenant of grace. Thinking of the covenant of grace as primarily a temporal covenant uh, beginning at the first sin, where, where Christ, as the mediator, interposed himself as the effect of this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, which, which today we have come to call the covenant of redemption. That was eternal in nature. So we spent a good bit of time last week talking about that covenant of redemption. It's revealed in many, 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 many places in Scripture. We went right to John 17 to to hear Jesus himself speaking in his prayer to the Father of that work thou gavest me to do. That work is, is... with all the warrant we can muster in Scripture, that work that Christ is referring to is that eternal covenant of redemption between him and the Father, which propelled him into the world eagerly to attain redemption for those the Father had given him, to give eternal life, as he says, to as many as thou hast given me. That's the glory which, as Jesus said, I had with thee before the world was. It was the glory of the prospect of redemption, the decree of redemption, which to God is as effectual, uh, and I'm using human language again here, as the actual accomplishment of it. Uh, We we can't delve into those mysteries of God's eternity, but the glory was there at the very beginning when the gospel is published, when Christ appears in the world and he actually accomplishes redemption, then we have what we call the gospel, the evangelion which was first published primitively in Genesis after the first sin uh, in the promise there that God gave uh, in speaking to Adam and Eve and and, uh, with reference to uh, the seed of the serpent and so forth. We We won't go back there. But that is when grace first appeared in the world. That's when mercy first appeared in the world. These are great attributes of God that but for sin and in the wisdom of God's ordaining of it never could have been known of God. And this is, this is the thing, uh, and I, I say it somewhat uh, uh, perhaps it's a little dangerous to say, but I don't really think so, that of all of God's attributes, of course he glories infinitely in all of them, but there is something very special about that attribute of God's loving kindness and mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, because the eternal Son is manifesting the Father in a way that would never, could never have been manifested apart from actually the sin that he decreed. Uh, There's been a lot of ink spilled on this subject, 
But that's, that's enough for us just to contemplate the wisdom, the eternal, ineffable wisdom of God in ordaining all that he did so that we might enjoy him as much as is possible in any way for a creature to enjoy God. So the glory in the beginning is the glory in the gospel that's revealed to us. It was a work at the beginning in that covenant of redemption that the Father gave the Son to do, and it's a work that the Son embraced and took to himself with his whole heart and soul. So that, that's the important point we, we, we wanted to see from last week. We enlisted a number of texts of Scripture, and I'll just read them very quickly, very succinct, uh, just so that we're, we're in the atmosphere of this as we move forward. Titus 1.2, the eternal life promised before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9, grace given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in Christ before the world began or before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, we are redeemed with the blood of Christ who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You see this language, it's just, it, the New Testament is riddled with it. It's everywhere. If you, if you once have an eye to, to, to scope it out, it's all over the place. Paul is just continually at pains, and Peter as well, to speak of what, what was going on before the foundation of the world. And then, of course, at last we come to Hebrews 10.5, when he cometh into the world, there is that eternal Son of God, who was ordained to be the Redeemer, to be the Mediator, when he cometh into the world, he saith, A body hast thou prepared me. Lo, I come to do thy will. So all of those previous uh, assertions about what went on before the foundation of the world now have their culmination and their fulfillment in Christ. Now the time has come. A body has been prepared for me, and I come and I take it to myself. In other words, the body being... being uh, a way to say the human nature, because as we'll see, it's not just the body that he took to himself, but it was a human mind as well. The whole person, the whole human person, he took to himself. And that became a matter of controversy as you go through the, the history of the church in the fourth century. They, they battled over these things, and we'll come to that with a little more detail next week. This morning, we want to think about this one aspect in the answer. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God. So the eternal Son of God, that's our subject this morning, uh, which brings up the doctrine of eternal generation, the eternal generation of the Son, which again was something that was really hashed out uh, with much pains in the, in, the, in the early church, particularly in the fourth century. But, but it, it precedes that as well. I mean, as early as, say, Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 220, I believe he was dealing with, with this when he was dealing with the modalists or the, 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 the Sibelians or the, the Praxians. He wrote a great work against Praxius in which he talks about this. But it really came into its full by the time you get to the Nicene Council in 325. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So after thinking about God as God, uh, the, the, the one divine essence... Then we came to the three persons, if you remember, in previous weeks. And we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see particularly if we narrow in on the Father and the Son, we see this relationship between them ad intra of the Father begetting and the Son being begotten. Those are the terms, biblically, that we use. And there's really not much else to distinguish between the Father and the Son because they're one, 
one God, one divine essence. So the distinction between them is the begetting on the one hand and the being begotten on the other. So as we come to the doctrine of Christ, there's three ways that we ought to think of him to begin with, to begin with large categories, three ways. There's, and, and the prologue of John helps us very much here that I already referred to, uh, that first half of John chapter 1. You have, we have Christ as he is God, the one divine nature. We have him as he is with God. And again, we're thinking of John's prologue. He's both God and he's with God. There's a distinction there. There's a distinction. The distinction is father and son. One God but God with God, as it were. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. But then thirdly, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So those are the three ways to think about Christ Jesus, the mediator, as he is God, as he is with God, and, and, but he can be with God, and he was with God eternally without taking our flesh upon him. So, But to perform, to accept the work of mediator, and to eagerly have it as his eternal prospect is the work of the eternal Son of God, not enfleshed, not incarnated. But then comes the incarnation, and now suddenly he appears in his temple, as it, as it were, as Malachi prophesies. It was made flesh, dwelt among us. So then we can call him three different things. It's a little awkward calling him with God, calling him was made flesh and dwelt among us. So as he is God, we call him God, and rightfully so. Christians worship Christ, because he is God. If he wasn't God, we would be idolaters if we worshipped him. So we worship Christ because he is God. So as he is God, we call him God. As he is with God, we call him the eternally begotten Son of God. And as he was made flesh and dwelt among us, we call him the Son of Man, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's other titles we can give to him in that way. But those those are the three ways that we think of him. They're the three ways we, we call him or the three titles that we give him. And so when we come to question 21, we're dealing with the second and the third of these. We're dealing with him as with God or as the eternal son of God and as he was made flesh and dwelt among us or Jesus Christ our Lord, the mediator between God and man. Those are the two ways that are revealed in this question 21, who being the eternal son of God became man. So we have the doctrine of eternal generation, which we're about to leap into, and then we'll come, if we have time, by the end of the class, but certainly more fully we'll treat next week the, what's called the hypostatic union. And hypostatic is just a big word for personal. Uh, it's the Greek word hypostasis, which, which was a very important word uh, in the early church and in the Council of Nicaea. Uh, hypostasis being the person the three persons, three hypostases, and usia being the essence, one essence, one usia, three hypostases. We, we've already used the language, but we've been saying essence and person. The Greek words are usia and hypostasis. So when we say the hypostatic union, we're simply saying the personal union, the personal union of two persons, I'm sorry, rather, two natures in one person. And this is probably the second greatest mystery if, if we can rank ineffable infinite mysteries which I suppose we can't rank in some ways but, but in a sense the Trinity is historically understood as the greatest mystery that's one essence subsisting in three persons uh, or I should say three 
three persons in one essence. Uh, with the mediator, it's, it's kind of the opposite way. It's, it's two essences or two natures in one person. So you get your numbers right, and we come a long way if we just simply get that formula right. So the Trinity and the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So that's where we're at. So the eternal generation of the Son. Let's, let's leap into this. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God. The Westminster Confession, speaking in the, in the same language, speaks of him as eternally begotten of the Father. There's a, there's a, the eternally begotten, so when we think of the Son being eternally begotten, we, our minds start churning, and we say, well, what, what does that mean? How can he be eternally begotten? It's, it's, we're very prone to think in carnal terms or natural terms. We think of how human beings are begotten, and we begin to apply that to the eternal generation of the Son. Big mistake, as I, as I, as I hope we know. When we say that the Son is begotten of the Father, we have to follow some rules. The rules we've already somewhat laid down, although I haven't called them rules. But all our thinking about what God does must be grounded in what He is. What, what He is is the rule of what He does. And so what, God, what, what is revealed in the Scriptures about what God is, and we're thinking now, of what we spent some considerable time on, and that is his incommunicable attributes. He doesn't do anything inconsistent with all of those incommunicable attributes. So, a most pure spirit. Remember, we read this out of the Confession. He's a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Uh, this is the, what, what, what the ancients called the via negativa. That is, knowing God by what he is not more than by what he is. He's without body, parts, or passions. Well, what, what does that mean? Positively, it's, it's very difficult to state for mortals, for finite beings to state what the finite, immortal, actually is. But we know certainly with the light of Scripture what he is not. And he's not like us. He's not a creature. He's the creator. And there's no reasonable analogy to the creator for, for creatures. So we must grant all our thinking about what God does upon what he is. And so we, we've got to follow the rules of his incommunicable attributes, particularly in this case, although all of them apply, but we're thinking particularly of when we think of eternal generation, we're thinking of his simplicity. He's not composed of parts. We're thinking of his infinity. We're thinking of his impassibility. He doesn't have human passions. So, and, and this is ground we've covered. And, and, Hopefully we're building little by little on these things as we come because, of course, the subject that, that, that we're interested in, that we're prying into, as it were, is the nature and the work of the mediator between God and man. All this pertains to him. So it's, they're, they're not just, I'm not just trying to cram in a bunch of doctrines and then get to the mediator. All of these things that we've been talking about pertain to the eternal Son of God, the mediator between God and man. So his simplicity and his impassibility. He sees infinitely, as we said, but not with creaturely eyes. He loves infinitely, but not with the creaturely needs. When we love, there's need involved, inextricably. With all of our love, there's need involved, not with God's love. And, and so we understand God in these ways that, that infinitely surpass the way that we have these same things that are analogous to him. He sees, he loves. We see, we love. 
but they're worlds apart. But there's some analogy between the two. So, just as he sees infinitely and loves infinitely without eyes, without needs, he begets in a simple, infinite, impassable way by no creaturely means whatsoever. Now, if we fail to keep this rule, and it's very easy to fail to keep this rule, because we just naturally spring right back to creaturely thoughts. That's what it means to think carnally. And it's unworthy of God when we think of God. But we do it all the time. I mean, we, we, we can't avoid it. We're sinful creatures, and we do. But if we fail to keep the rule, and we begin to think of the Father's begetting as we do of human begetting, the almost necessary, inevitable conclusion is going to be, well, there must have been a time when the Son was not. There must have been a time when the Son was not. Because that's what human begetting does. You, you, you beget a son, there was a time he was not, and now suddenly he is. And we, we image that onto the eternal generation of the Son of God. And what we've just done is run into the great error of the great heresiarch of all, and that is Arius, who said exactly the same thing. As you know, I mean, as soon as I, the words came out of my mouth, most of you were like, oh yeah, that's what Arius said. Well, it is indeed what he said. If the son was begotten, then there was a time when he was not. Well, when he said this, admittedly, there was something of the force of logic, or I should say of carnal reasoning, uh, behind it. And it caused a great breach in the church. It precipitated a great division. And suddenly the whole church of the 4th century was in a ferment. Now, he made this statement right around the year 318, 320, something like that. Well, after quite an ordeal, the new emperor Constantine, and you know some of this history, called a great council. First council in the church uh, since the days of persecution. There had been no ecumenical council, as it's called. The first great ecumenical council after the persecution of the church ceased was convened in the year 325. That's the Council of Nicaea, 325. Great, great, important council, the very first one that's called ecumenical. And the Nicene Creed, of course, sprang out of that council, which we'll come to. Well, the great champion of the Nicene cause, who was fairly young at this point, he was only 28, and he was only a deacon in the church at Alexandria, where Arius also was a presbyter at the time. Uh, But the hero that we're thinking here of is Athanasius, as many of you were already thinking, the great Athanasius of Alexandria. His years are 297 to 373. Now, regarding Arius' claim and the Arians that followed him, because Athanasius was embroiled all through the 4th century, uh, the Nicene Creed did not settle this issue. It did formally, but informally there was a split in the church and, and it really was in danger of, of totally going under under the force of the Arians, who were very politically savvy and got in, in uh, the, the inner chamber, as it were, with the emperor, Constantine, and then those who followed him. Uh, they were very much like Haman's, as it were, when we think of the book of Esther uh, and, and the king there, how Mordecai got into his favor. But at last he was cast out, and at last in God's providence, the Arians were cast out of the church. But it took decades and decades for it to happen. It was a bitter conflict. Well, this is what Athanasius says in regard to this Arian claim that there was a time the father was, uh, the son was not primarily basing it on the fact that he's begotten. He's begotten. The divine generation, says Athanasius, must not be compared to the nature of men. 
This is what we've just been saying. God is not as a man. He is not composed of parts, but simple. He is indivisibly father and son. So the force, and his argument goes on, but the gist of it is this. Every finite son is a part of his finite parents. He takes apart from the mother, as it were, apart from the father, and from these parts, he's composed of parts as well. And by the multiplication of these parts, then he becomes a discrete or a separate individual, separate from them. Well, this is, this is human generation, human begetting. And it's all according to the original command that God gave to Adam in the garden, be fruitful, increase, and multiply. That's how human generation works. You increase and you multiply. Well, God cannot increase because he's, he's infinite. He cannot multiply because he's simple. He's not composed of parts. He can't increase. He can't decrease. He can't multiply. He can't be divided. The divine essence is, by definition, indivisible, eternally one. And therefore, if the divine essence is eternally one, the begetting of the father, the begetting, the father's begetting of the son is also eternally one. It must be according to the rule. And so Athanasius continues, the father and the son are not divided into two parts because the nature or the essence is one only. And yet they are two because the father is the father and not also the son and the son is the son and not also the father. So you see, he's, he's making the distinctions that, that, that we've been, been looking at the one essence, so they can't be divided, and yet the Father and the Son are two, but only in their persons, not in their essence. This is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. I, I have to take the time, and I hesitate to do so, but this is a wonderful quote by one of the heirs of Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, and we'll, we'll have to come to him a little bit next week too, but this is what Gre- Gregory of Nazianzus says about this eternal generation. How was the, son, how was the eternal Son of God begotten? I repeat the question. The begetting of God must be honored by silence. It is a great thing for you, O man, to learn that he was begotten. But the manner of his generation we will not admit that even angels can conceive of, much less you. Shall I tell you how it was? It was in a manner known to the Father who begot and to the Son who was begotten. And that is all. It's known to them only. Anything more than this is hidden by a cloud and escapes your dim sight. That's the via negativa again. And he goes on. This much we will say for our part. It is a great thing for the Father to be unbegotten. That's what he is, unbegotten. It is no less a thing for the Son to have been begotten by such an unbegotten Father. For not only would he share the glory of the unbegotten, since he is of the unbegotten, but he also has the added glory, as it were, of his generation, a thing so great and august in the eyes of all who are not altogether groveling and material in mind. Well, there's that, that, those are some spiritual words. Uh, something to contemplate. All right, well, that's so much for Gregory of Nazianzus. Let's return to Athanasius. And, and here, as he continues his argument, he grounds himself on a text that we read at the beginning, Hebrews chapter 1. And particularly that one clause that, that the Son is the brightness of the Father's glory. Another way to say it is he's the, the radiance 
of the Father's glory, or the effulgence, I, I particularly like that word, effulgence, of God's glory, of the Father's glory. And the analogy, or, or at least the analogy we can make to understand that, is of the sun and its radiance. You have the sun, which is one light, you have its rays, which in a sense is a second light, but it's the light, it's the same light. But we refer to them as different things, the sun and its rays. Well, almost all the early church fathers to a man used this analogy when speaking of the relationship between the father and the son. And Athanasius is no different. He uses it. So this is what he says here in this text, Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory, here in this text is signified the eternity of the son. He is not separate, but proper to the Father's essence. He is ever the eternal radiance of an eternal light. For the radiance also is light, not a different light, but the proper offspring of it. Such an offspring, therefore, is necessarily one light only and not two lights. And yet, the sun and the radiance are two, yet the light is one. The sun enlightening in its own radiance all things. And so also is the Godhead of the Son. The Godhead of the Son is the Father's. One God eternally and none other but He. Well, that's Athanasius again. Uh, These are marvelous things to to meditate on. Really tremendous. So this is the divine nature of the Son of God as Athanasius is putting it forth in the face of the, the Arian controversy. The Son of God who... In the beginning was God and was with God, without whom nothing was ever made. And I'm just quoting essentially here from John's prologue. Dwelling in, and this is really the crucial thing that captures what Athanasius is saying. Dwelling in, but shining out from inaccessible light. We can't see the inaccessible light, but in the mediator, in the glorious Son of God, we see shining forth from the inaccessible light, the light of revelation of God in the face, as it were, of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6. So John 1.18, this is the culminating verse of John's prologue. And, and in, in essence, this is saying the same thing. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's saying the same thing as we just said, dwelling in but shining out from inaccessible light. It's the same thing. So, now we come to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. And you see this language fixed into, embedded in the Nicene Creed, this doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son of God. Not something that happened once. It's not a temporal event. So it didn't like happen in time past and then stop. It didn't start and stop. It, 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 it didn't start it did not start. Did I say stop and start? Well, that too, but it, it did not start. It did not stop. It never had any beginning. And in fact, it has no ending. This is the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, one of eternal begetting and being eternally begotten. Just like the rays of the sun, the radiance. There's, did the sun exist before its rays? No. No. There, there's no priority in time between the two. But in position, you could say that there's a sense of priority, uh, but only in this... Well, we won't get into that. But there is a sense of priority, certainly, when we come to the economy of redemption, 
That is, the Son being the servant of the Father in this way. But they're equally God. So the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. That's the Father. Now it comes to the Son, which is a longer portion, necessarily, because that was the battlefield. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light. There's the allusion to Hebrews 1.3, the brightness of His glory. He's light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. And there's the word, one substance is usia. Homo usia, I should say. One essence or one nature with the Father by whom all things were made. So that's the doctrine of eternal generation. And there, there's so many quotes we could pull out from the, the early church fathers on this that are beautiful and marvelous. But we'll end it there. We want, just for the last couple of minutes here, to begin, and then we'll finish out, and it will take the complete class next week to finish out as we get into question 23, because 22 and 23 are very similar if you read over them. Uh, there's details that are different. The principle is laid out in 22, uh, I'm sorry, 21, but in 22, you, you have some of the details of it, the, the, the nuts and the bolts, as it were, coming out in the actual incarnation, which is just another word for in flesh. Asian. Car- carnal uh, it comes from the Greek word for flesh. So when we say the incarnation, we're talking about the, the enfleshment of the Son of God, Him taking our nature to Himself. And I want to emphasize that point. I'll emphasize it right now. He took... He was not passive in this. The body indeed was prepared for Him. But the Son of God took it. He seized it, in fact, is one of the words that the New Testament uses for this. He laid hold of that human nature and took it to himself. Uh, I've referred to his eagerness in all eternity, and here it was coming to fruition. He took our nature upon himself because he was ready. He was willing. He was saying, oh my God, I have come to do your will. Thy law is within my heart. And there's, a, there's an aggressive, as it were, aspect of his taking it on to himself, just as he was aggressive as he came to the cross. We speak of the cross as being his passive obedience, and indeed it was in the sense that he was receiving in his own body the punishment for our sins, the curse and the wrath of God upon him. In that sense only was it passive, in that he was receiving the penalty for our sins, but it was active all of the way. He was given power by the Holy Spirit as a man to offer himself sinless unto the Father. He was offering Himself. He was giving Himself. So that's the first point of the hypostatic union. Uh, He became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. We're going to look at this two distinct natures more carefully next week. So there there was no personhood that inhered to the human nature. That's an important point. It is the Son of God who's taking it to Himself. The one person, when we say the hypostatic union, the one person that the two natures are in is not just kind of a generic person that was included in the human nature. The person is the eternal Son of God. This is such a crucial point. It's God manifest in the flesh. That's the person that the natures are united in. That's so crucial. Uh, a lot of Christology it, it looks at him first as a man and then the adoptionism, which was an ancient heresy, that he was so perfect, so pleasing to the Father that then the, the, the divine nature indwelt him. 
but the person originally was a man. That, that, that's not the biblical account. It's not the apostolic account. So there was only one personhood involved from beginning to end, and of course there's no end to it because we read in the Catechism, well, and the Scripture as well, uh, that he continues in this state forever. He's there now behind the veil, interceding for us in two distinct natures, but one person forever, having our nature with him, making our nature, us, in other words, acceptable with the Father. It is so beautiful. He's a sweet savor and, and a sweet-smelling offering to God the Father on our behalf. Philippians 2.6 who being in the form of God, yet took on him, and there's that, there's that active action, took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And precisely, and this is where we start coming to the heart of his mediatorial glory in office, is precisely he did this so that he might be fitted for supreme degradation. That's why he came, to be degraded, to be stripped, as it were to suffer loss, to bear the wrath and the curse of God in his own body on the tree, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as Peter says, all of this so that he might fulfill that work given to him by the Father from all eternity, to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's the whole point of it all. Which brings us to one last point I want to mention, just kind of as an introduction to next week's look uh, at this hypostatic union. Here we have opened our view, and I've already alluded to it, what went on in the eternal councils, which are hidden. As Gregory of Nazianzus points out, it's hidden from our eyes. We cannot see these things. We cannot see the eternal generation. We cannot know it. The Father knows it, and the Son knows it. And that's all. We may say that the Holy Spirit knows it as well, certainly. But we have opened to our view what was from the beginning not only the love of the Father, and we've made, we've made some ado about the eternal love of the Father, but it's not only the love of the Father now that comes into view when we are looking at the Gospel. That's, that, that has a priority, again, in a sense, because His love is the fountain of all that flows out of it. But there's something equal in glory to, to that love of the Father, which is eternal and predestinating, and that is the eternal love of the Son, which is obtaining and redeeming. There is an equal glory here. We must put it that way. It's an equal glory. This is what Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's speaking about the love of the Son of God, the person of the eternal, eternally begotten Son of God for him personally as, as one of those that the Father had given to the Son. Everything Christ did in this world, everything he does now in glory, Everything that he does with a view to his mediatorial office is with a constant, a uniform, an uninterrupted view to our everlasting blessedness in union with him. That's the whole point of everything. The whole point is the glory of God in this. But our union with Christ is so inextricably apart and linked with God's glory this is the glory of redemption. And therefore, we're involved in it because he doesn't redeem himself. He redeems us. All the world, and we'll end with this, all the world, says John Owen, was nothing to Christ in comparison with us. Having from eternity undertaken to bring us to God, this is Owen now, having from eternity undertaken to bring us to God, 
He rejoices his soul in the thoughts of it and pursues his design through heaven and hell, through life and death, and ceaseth not until he brings them all, not one accepted, to perfection. And then he adds this, And if we are not like-minded with him in this love, if we love anything more than him, we are not worthy of him. And you see, that hits home so closely. When you're, the more you contemplate the eternal love, obtaining and redeeming of the eternal Son of God for his people, you feel ashamed. You surely feel ashamed at how, how little, how weak, how fluctuating, how unstable our love for him is. But when we're nestled in his love, uh, we have forgiveness for this coldness, for this lukewarmness. But we have to admit and confess that it's there. And in comparison to the sun shining in, in all its strength, I mean, we, we're nothing compared to that love. But that's the love that was placed on us from eternity and has obtained us, if we've truly had living faith, has obtained us for all eternity. So, well, in there, I just, I just want to quote this one line, uh, well, well, half of a verse from Paul Gerhardt. Uh, the great German hymnist uh, in the 1600s, which which fits so well with this point. Love, says Paul Gerhardt, love caused thine incarnations. Love brought thee down to me. Thy thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. O love beyond all telling that led thee to embrace. In love, all love excelling, our lost and fallen race. That that sums up everything here. So uh, with that... We're dismissed and uh, we'll head to worship.